The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex episode 175 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the OneOuter.com website, and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, it is not Thursday, it is Friday. We couldn't record yesterday for a combination of reasons. How are you today and what's been happening? I'm fan-effing-tastic. How are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm the same. Ditto. <laughs> Absolutely. I have no, I have nothing to connect with that. I'm just saying, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, good, good. So, what's been happening <laughs> in Alex's world? What's been? Have you been playing again? I know you were back playing online. Have you been doing any of that? Nope, I haven't been. Uh, I've been finishing my book, which I finished last night. Which everybody I show it to says this is excellent, but of course, being me, there is a part of me that goes, "This is probably horrendous," uh, but. It seems like it's a pretty good book, and it's done. So, you know, if uh, if I go out on the street and get hit by a bus, there's one more book coming out by me, so that's done. And, and <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. This is a poker strategy book as well. Yeah, it's a poker strategy book. It's, uh, it's for the people who published my first book. Mm-hmm. I took some risks with this one, and I say at the beginning of the book... The problem, the two things I learned with the myth of poker talent is, one, if you confuse people, they will talk about how smart you are, and two, nobody understands equity calcs. So there was a bunch of things in the myth of poker talent I found really fascinating, but they were hidden within 200 images of equity calculations, which I find fascinating, but the average person does not, and... I think a less enlightened person, such as the man who wrote that first book, would say, well, that's their problem. But the truth is, human beings do not respond to facts and figures. Facts and figures are actually weak tea when it comes to convincing people. Persuasion is done in a different way. And I genuinely care because the more you succeed, the better I do, the more money I make, the happier my life is. So it's actually in my best interest to see you succeed. So, which is, by the way, as I've learned from Skin in the Game, uh, from Taleb, I finished that book after we got done talking last week, Uh was uh, you should never trust anybody unless they have skin in the game, a vested interest in you for some reason, right? Yeah. So the thing being, it is in my best interest to see you win, 
But the thing being, if I hit you with every stat and figure I have, you might find it compelling, but it might not tell you how to play. It's just like when you read popular science and they just they refer to every study there is on Earth. And you, you think uh, they, they do these reviews of medical journals like a year afterward and they can't replicate 62% of the studies. And then a statistician such as Taleb says, yeah, only about one out of 10 of these is really verifiable if you run it again. You think about it, referring to studies, as long as it does, if it doesn't confirm common sense, a lot of the times you should be very wary, right? And also look to whether the scientist is pimping themselves out to whoever is the sponsor, right? Which is what happens many of the times. But that being said, I felt I over-explained things in the myth of poker talent in that it was very compelling to me, but... If you were to ask an American football coach, all right, I'm part of your team, how do I play? He's not going to tell you the mechanics of the perfect QB throw and the exact trajectory that this receiver should come in at. No, no, no. Those are things he thinks about in his private time. But what he's really likely to do is take all the analytics and condense it into something much more simple. So, uh... Marty Ball is something I referred to in one of my recent articles on America's Cardroom's blog. Uh, NFL football coach who co- coached for 20 years, he said this, you do not turn the ball over ever. You do a running game that is strong and keeps the defense honest. And when you pass the ball, you pass the ball short distances, so you do not turn the ball over. That was his entire coaching philosophy. That's all he said. That was his whole thing, and he called it Marty Ball. And it kept him in the NFL for 20 years. Well, if you look at the analytics, the worst thing that could ever happen in the history of anything in American football is a turnover. Because one score is worth so much of the overall total, point total, at the end of the game. So his insistence on plays that never turn the ball over and a balance between running and passing plays actually is pretty good Moneyball football, if you think about it. But he's pared it down in a way that you'll probably remember for a long time. So I tried to do that with poker. This new book is the result. It's very simple. I actually stuck to a goal from the beginning. I said not one graph, not one figure, not one photo, the entire book. This entire book from start to finish is just going to be like you and me sitting in a diner and me thinking I have one hour to get you to go play the main event and I got 5% of you, right? So I hope you guys enjoy it. I certainly had a lot of fun making it. But yeah, uh, other than that, not not playing poker uh, just because the book was kicking my ass. I've gotten really into uh, listening to audiobooks and uh, cooking so finish that uh, Taleb book, which was really good. Getting into soccer, too. It's uh, Now that I'm starting to understand the game a little bit, the more I read soccernomics and book like that, it's a pretty interesting game, Barry. I kind of see why you punters from the United Kingdom like it so much. Yeah, until you start calling it football, I'm going to just... Uh, no, hey, listen, listen. <laughs> According to Soccernomics, all you word I'm not going to say 
that starts with a C that you really like on that side of a pond. All of you guys called it soccer until 1974 from the 1800s. Then all you jackasses decided you had the real football instead of us, and then you started calling it football. So I'm going to call it the same thing that your countrymen called it for the better part of a century. That sound good to you? I don't think in Scotland they did, because like, my football club... How, you, how old were you in 1974? How would you know that? I was minus nine. Yeah, no, no, they look it up. By the way, this is all humor. This is how Barry and I talk as a joke, by the way, guys. But, uh, no, they looked it up, like, the, how often was it called football in newspapers up until a certain time? And it was called soccer way more than it was called football. Up until the mid-'70s, it changed to football. But, no, we call it soccer on this side of the pond, sir. And yeah. it's not rounders, it's baseball. So, okay, we have different ways. It's maybe the American accent as well, soccer. It makes it worse for me. I'm just personally. <laughs> soccer. <laughs> we got to do it in the Trumpet. Soccer is a great game. Yeah, We're going to get better here in the United States, or however Trump would say it. Soccer. But, and, yeah, yeah, soccer. <laughs> China. Yes. They're beating us in soccer. <laughs> yeah. That's it. This can't go on. Very bad. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, what what's this deal? You're watching the news. Are the Koreans are the Koreans like cool now? Well, is North that- Korea and South Korea, they've met. Yeah, the two leaders. Um, they met and planted a tree with soil and water from both sides and stuff, and said they're not going to. They're going to be one, yeah, one country, one nation type thing. And I don't know how far that'll go, but yeah, it seems all pretty peaceful. And this know, is weird. I think Trump can take some credit for it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they have a mutual, <laughs> they have a mutual enemy now. I don't know, like yeah, a yeah, common yeah. enemy. But yeah. uh, well, just, now yeah. Trump's going to meet Kim Jong Un as well, so we'll see what happens there. That'll okay. be interesting. This is so weird because remember, I lived in Seoul for a year, and I remember the first day I was there. They said, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast, but a guy is showing me my room, and he goes, "Okay, there's your bed." Uh, there's your bathroom, uh, right there's uh, vanity, probably no use for that, and here's your gas mask, you have a great day. I was like, wait, hold on, <laughs> like, gas mask? And they were like, oh yeah, you know, we get threatened by North Korea like every nine days, you know, get a lot of threatening faxes from Pyongyang, and yeah, anyway, so it's, it's really weird to me to hear this happening, this is quite the shift from when I was there, but yeah, I guess we... Uh, Got nothing else really to talk about. That, that's pretty much it. Maybe we should answer some poker questions. Well, I, I'll do the promoting for you. When's the new book out? What's it called? If you can give any. Oh yeah. On that. Hold on, I'm not really sure what it's called. I'm just kidding. Excelling at live poker. Yeah. Hold on, let me make sure that's it. Yeah, excelling at live. I kept calling it excelling at live no limit holding, which I was like, that's not right. I kept saying that, but uh. No, it's uh, Excelling at Live Poker. We're trying to get it out as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, um, uh, that check it out on D&B's website. Promoting always feels so dis... Like, it, it just doesn't feel genuine, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, buy my stuff. But no, the book, it's coming. It's uh, You guys will like it, too. It's uh, a lot of reference to... Uh, well, it... it the thing I like about it is when you say something simple, it better be right. 
Because if you say something really complicated, poker coaches do this crap all the time, and I hate it. Which is, and I, I've been guilty of this too, not, not, by, not on purpose, but it's definitely easy to do. Which is, if you make a really complex answer and the person doesn't do it right, you can just go, well, you didn't understand it. If you make something really simple and it doesn't work for the person, guess whose ass is on the line? Yeah. Right? You, uh, so the more simple you make it, the more my name's on the line. So I'm really into that. And this is the stuff that, like that Marty ball we were talking about, it's based on analytics. I'm really lucky. This is something I didn't really talk about. Uh, I, I haven't really talked about on the podcast, but all those high roller players you see, all those guys playing 100Ks, 200Ks, all that stuff, those guys are all teams. There's usually eight or nine guys pooling their bankrolls, and they have different uh, – each guy has, like, a different role. There's, uh, there's guys that do scouting reports. There's guys that uh, – there's guys that are ICM mathematicians. There's uh, guys who do the pile solver stuff. I got to talk to a guy who does the analytics. He is the de facto analytics department of one of the bigger high roller teams. Right, and, I don't, and I'm not saying they play in teams like they cheat. I'm saying, like, they put together their players in a specific way and put together their bankrolls, right? Mm-hmm. And I got to talk to one of the analytics guys, the analytics guy. And this guy, talking to this guy for five minutes, it was pretty clear he was in the stratosphere while I was playing around in the sandbox, right? But uh, it it occurred to me, and, you know, we were talking, and he was like, yeah, there's only probably, like, four guys like me that do what I do, right? And maybe ten I don't know about. And then I've been really lucky enough to go, like, look, this is what I have from the live hands I track. Uh, does that hold out for you? And he goes, oh, yeah, that holds out. Let, let me check my database. And he has way more, you know, because he's monitoring this whole backing stable or whatever the hell it was that plays and they have to record their hands a specific way. And he goes, yeah, that holds out for the tournaments you're talking about. You know, after a certain level, you know, once you get past 3,500 WPTs or uh, cash games beyond, let's say, like 510 in most of the world, those analytics don't hold out. But for 99% of poker games, that's how people play. So I went and took those numbers and I created a profile of – what I believe the common poker player thinks and why they do the things they do, and I'm pretty damn sure I've got it right, Barry. And if you look at it from that scope and you play against this player thinking they think this way, it works for every one of my students. I get 100, 200 positive emails to every one negative one I get. And it... It's really simple when you think about it. Well, maybe I've asked you this stuff before, Barry, in a lesson, but would you say, well, tell me, actually, I, I've only been able to survey, survey a few people in the United Kingdom. Would the average, so you go into a casino, you know, people watching their soccer, uh, people gambling on sports. Sorry, I just wanted to say it with the American accent again, just because I thought it would be like nails on a chalkboard for you. But, okay, so you go into the average poker, poker club, and would you say the average poker player, the average guy sitting there, is overweight, normal weight, or underweight? The average poker average. player. 
Yeah, like the average guy who's like a regular poker player. He's not like a tourist. He's not. He. We're not talking about like the personal oh, trainer man. that's on a trip, and he decided to play some cards for a couple hours. We're talking about the guy. He's into poker. What is he? Overweight, normal weight, or underweight? Overweight. Overweight. This actually changes from country to country. That one. Okay, so overweight. Does the average poker player consider themselves to be above average in intelligence, average in intelligence, or under the average of intelligence? Above. Above. Far above? Like, because most people think they're more intelligent than they are, but compared to the common population, like, way above? Way above. Way above, okay. And is the average poker player happy with their station in life, indifferent with their station in life, or unhappy with their station in life? Unhappy. Unhappy. I have surveyed hundreds of people, and they all say the exact same damn thing. And when you go to a card room, they wear it on their faces. Mm -hmm. The funniest thing is this is a game about people, and yet no one makes a profile of the common poker player. They don't do it, right? If we were trying... If I was doing market research uh, for a firm here in New York, I would have to create a profile of my common customer. If I were an FBI profiler, I'd have to create a scouting report of the guy I'm hoping to capture before he kills another five people. <laughs> and yet in poker, we just neglect that part. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, so we, we, we have all decided... The average poker player considers themselves to be above average in intelligence, is very unhappy with their station in life, and is overweight. Now, also considering the fact that I used to consult for sports, uh, sports books, I used to consult for gaming companies, right? did that for years. I got, I got to talk to the people that did the books, 90, and I've confirmed this with other people in the industry, 95% of poker players lose money. That means 19 out of every 20 guys in that card room, in that card room, day in, day out, actually more alive because they're paying more in rank. They're paying more in dealer tips. 19 out of 20 of those guys lose money. So why do they play? Why do you think they play, Barry? I think a lot of them are addicted or a lot they're of them are deluded yeah. as well. Yeah, but if you're addicted, like you're an addicted gambler, maybe put it on red, right? <laughs> it's faster, right? They believe they have some sort of control. There, there it is, there it is. It, that's a bit of it. My belief, and I put this in the book, is they play poker to feel good about themselves. And if you play poker to feel good about yourself, there are certain things you will never do. And we talk about that a lot in that book. What you do have to worry about the common poker player doing and what you don't have to worry about the typical poker player doing. And since they're predictably irrational, systematically irrational, how you can exploit that for a profit. This is not game theory optimal because guess what? None of these people knows what game theory is. Therefore, that is a false thing to apply in this situation. It's not going to optimize your profits. You cannot exploit another person without becoming exploitable yourself. Do you think Chip Reese, if he showed up at a really good cash game and he was going against a recreational player, a guy he was friends with, do you think that guy ever thought, I need to balance my range here? No. 
Absolutely not. Do you think Doyle Brunson ever thought about balancing his range versus an average guy who was passing through the night in his game? No. No. So it's like we, we fetishized in this industry, we fetishized game theory optimal. It's this very wishy-washy shit, I bet. Here, well, 60% of the time you should, 40% you shouldn't. That's not an answer. Like, yes. That's optimal versus somebody who's playing optimally. I'm not playing against a guy who's playing optimally. This guy's 53, and he looks like he's 81, and he's got hair growing out of his ears. I don't think he's using combinatorics. His eyes are glassy. I think there's one thing he wants to do. What is that? And, yeah, we talk a lot about that in the book. I'm really happy with the book. I think some people... It's, uh, you know, it's not your common poker book, so some people have some things to say about that, but I'm pretty happy about what I put out. And more than anything, as you get older, you start feeling your body break down a little bit more. You don't heal as easily as you used to. Uh, I actually, I hurt myself running the other day. I've been running since I was 18, and for the first time, I hurt myself running. I couldn't walk home. Uh, I, I was hobbling. You start thinking about what do you want to leave. And this book is the culmination of everything I have thought, seen, heard, and studied since the Myth of Poker, Tur- uh, the Myth of Poker Talent came out. Because I had a very different thing happen. When that book came out, the online guys got that book and they said, well, I don't need Alex anymore. Because the only thing I ever needed Alex for was to learn how to study. And here's that book. And overnight, my consulting business disappeared. And that was very scary. But then I got a new customer. And it was actually, in my opinion, more fun with these people because they were professionals who said, I read your book. I get it. I see the logic. I don't have time. Tell me, how do I do it? Tell me what you found when you studied. And that was very fun to write about. It was really fun. And, yeah, you start worrying about what are you going to leave, right, as your body breaks down. It's, I know it sounds very cryptic, but to me it's a very positive thing. God forbid something happened to me. There would be a book that comes out right after saying, like, hey, here's everything our friend Alex said before he passed about poker. Let's enjoy this. Right, And that's pretty cool, and you can hand that down. And more than anything, I love creating value. A lot of the poker players I talk to now, a lot of my students, I'd be friends with these people in real life. In fact, I am friends with them in real life. When I see them at poker tournaments, they always want to talk to me for like 20 seconds and then run off because they don't want to bug me. And they're always confused when I genuinely want to get a coffee or talk with them because most of these people, I really love picking their brains. It's really fascinating to meet doctors, lawyers, brokers, EMTs, uh, statisticians, uh, traders. Uh, what are some of the more interesting, or even like some of the working class stuff, like the guys who do landscaping, own landscaping companies. That's actually pretty interesting. And things like that, guys who work on oil rigs. It's really fun to meet them. But <laughs> it's, it's really fun to meet these people in work in this format and it's so nice 
to be able to create a product that can help them when I'm not there. And the fact that you can help people, you can create something of value. It's so nice to have a lesson with them. And you wished you had six hours to talk to them, but you only got one. Now I can send them a video that's like, hey, this is a lesson I used to do. I've done this lesson 20 times. Everybody who watches this lesson is better at this topic after they're done. Just watch it and you're good. It doesn't cost me anything to send to them. They get something of value. And it gets to bring our relationship to a different point. And I think I, I'm loving this. You know, I feel like good business is honest business. and It's about adding value to people's lives. And I really wish, I really wish we taught that more in schools, Barry. Like if you add value to people's lives, good things happen to you. Like people, all my students are really there for me and they're really good to me and they're really helpful. And it's, uh, it's, it's nice to have that now. It's nice to have that job. And when I play poker now, I feel fearless because I have all these people behind me. And more than anything, what's even really cool is a lot of them are just razor sharp. So if any of my ideas just don't hold water, they're going to find it, right? Especially once you teach them how to use the tools, they're going to run everything themselves. And then if it doesn't hold water, oh my God, am I going to hear about it? So it's it's been a very fun process and sorry guys i got a little taken with what i was just discussing but i can't hide it i love my job and i'm one of the luckiest people on earth and i really feel like i need to say that because if you don't say that it might never be said and that sounds really dumb but i feel in new york barry there's all these people my age with college degrees did everything by the book legitimately smarter than me. You you hear them talking and it's like, I think a lot of people give me more credit than they should because I have a ton of energy and the human mind associates energy with somebody who knows a lot, right? Like this is a high value person, right? And these people, they might be a little sullen but they're just smart like they're whip smart you can tell but like life just beats them down a lot of the time and you know it's just going from job to job the economy being a little weird and yeah and i'm sitting here just with the best job in the world and i feel like i have to say it at some point so you guys know how much how grateful i am i really do appreciate you guys being on this ride if you can hear the first one out or podcast with Barry and I, and you can hear this one, the 175th, you can hear how much you guys have changed me, how much more positive I am because of you, and how much more well-rounded I am because of you. So I do want to say thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, okay, well, while I hear myself back uh, again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's my way of shutting you up, Barry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, let's do the questions for the listeners. Let's thank yeah, them with the questions. Okay. okay, now we've got two questions from this guy, and we're going to do them because they're in order, and otherwise it's possible we'll forget them, or I'll forget going back to them. So the right. first question, and it's from G. Hello, Alex. Through your training stuff, I pay attention a lot to pot controllers. When I see one of those players, I try to overbet, push him out of the hand on several streets, on coordinated boards because his range is capped. But it doesn't seem to work well because they call off anyways with their top or second best pair. 
Is it in general better to see if they see bet and then go from there, taking advantage of their polarised range? Or would you recommend to overbet against that capped pot controlling ranges? In other words, how can I take advantage of pot controllers the most? Thanks, Alex. Uh, great question, G. By the way, guys, I thought Barry was going to stop talking while we were figuring out the audio, so I was going to go on another jag saying I really did want to make this book kind of a gift to you guys. If you read it in Barnes & Noble, my publisher probably wouldn't want me to say this, but it's not really going to hurt my feelings if you just read it there. But then Barry uh, actually did figure out the audio and start talking, so it sounded like a wildly arrogant statement, which is my new book is a gift to you guys. So sorry about that. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it sounded like Kanye. Yeah. You know? but, uh, yeah uh, no, this is a really good, uh, this is a really good question. My personal belief, G, and this seems to steer my students pretty well. I don't think it's optimal. But after somebody checks back, to me, your first, second, and third option is the overbat. And I tell myself, if I'm bluffing, I'm not willing to overbat. I'm not doing it. Because you think about it, let's say the board comes, let's say you have A7 suited in the big blind. Somebody opens, you're not really sure how much they're opening. So you don't three bet. So you call. And the board comes eight six five. You check, and the other guy checks behind. The turn is a two. No bet makes sense to me here, but an overbet. Because think about his range. When he checks back there, like G is talking about, he has told you he likely doesn't have nine seven because nine seven would be trying to build the pot. He likely does not have a set because the set would be trying to build the pot and also be worried about the straight action, right? Over pair is probably a little worried about that too. So when he checks, he has an eight, a six, a five, or nothing, right? And most of the time, it's not nothing because people see that way too much. So think about this range. I mean, people, every, every pot, this is an example of how poker is not getting harder. Everybody with a seven there, 99% of the field leads half pot. What is, what is half pot going to do? Ace high is folding to any bat, but an eight, a six, a five, which is most of his range, is calling half pot. So you've just built the pot with ace high. You're going to miss the river more than 80% of the time. So when you bet and he calls, you go, yes, I'm losing 80% of the time on the river, right? So what I love to do there, and I'll do this, let's say I have a set of sixes there too, right? Let's say in my range, if I have a set of sixes and it gets checked back, I'm overbetting because he has now what Matthew Jonda refers to as a condensed range, which is it's condensed into one pair of type hands. Uh, he, he was the first guy I heard using that term, so I, I'm, I'm going to give it to him. And if you overbet versus that, it makes a lot of sense, regardless of what you have. If you have a value hand, you can get more money from it because he likely has a pair. And pairs call more than a range that is a lot of non-pairs, small pairs, and some third pair, second pair, top pairs, right? This range is all top pair, second pair, and third pair, right? So, and if you're bluffing, it makes a ton of sense as well. If you bet two times the size of the pot, that sounds like a ginormous bet. 
it only needs to work 66% of the time. That means he needs to call with one hand out of three in order to make sure you cannot do that bet with any two cards. Now, I don't know about you, but let's say I do check back a six there for pot control because I have the backdoor flush draw or whatever it is. If my opponent bets two times the size of the pot, I'm not calling that. Which means if I'm folding second pair, there's no way in hell I'm calling enough there. And most people are like that. And guess what they do if they do anything? They call you. They don't raise you. They call because, again, they have capped their range at one pair. And one pair typically is not in the habit. The people who check back one pair on the flop because they don't want to blow up the size of the pot are not the same people who look at a 1.5x pot bet on the turn and go, you know what, I'm going to raise right now with my top pair and cash in my equity. No, they call with one pair, which guess what? Means you get to see if your straight draw hits for free. So even if we assume you don't get a dollar on the river, the hand is immediately over if you hit your straight and you get no money. That means your bet does not need to work 66% of the time. It needs to work less than half the time because with eight outs, you're going to hit, oh, what hell, eight divided by 46. I forgot, 19.5? No, 18? Anyway, so, anyway, see, guys, I don't know everything either. But the point is, even if you bet two times the size of the pot, your bet doesn't need to work even half the time, Right? And that is a dramatically powerful bet that nobody uses. And even if you do get caught, guess what? Throw in that over bet with the pocket sixes. I get crazy value in live turnings because, okay, I get caught over betting. It happens, right? Well, the next few times I got a hand, I just go big. And it's anchoring. Like in negotiating, there's an anchor, Right? You come out and everybody announces their first price is 50%, right? 50% of the pot. If you announce my normal price is 150% of the pot, 80% of the pot doesn't look too big to them anymore. And they call a little too much or 110% of the pot doesn't look so big. So it makes you a little bit more money. Hope this helps, G. Okay, uh, we got another question from G. So let's go straight into that one. And this one is, hello Alex, I recently busted two live satellites. I called one time from the big... Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I called one time from big blind with 11 big blinds, a 2.3 raise and a caller was also in the hand. I had ace-10 off and I flopped middle pair top kicker and went all in. The raiser folded and the other caller called me with top pair and he won. Another satellite. I only had eight big blinds remaining from the small blind, and facing a limper from the cutoff, I decided to fill up the blinds. With 10-9 off, board is 9-2-3 rainbow. I hey, hold on. Is it, where is he in this hand? Run that by me again. Uh, eight big blinds remaining in the small blind. He's in the small blind. Facing a limper from the cutoff. Yeah, he decided to fill up the blinds, so complete the blinds with 10-9 off. Okay. The board is 9-2-3 rainbow. I moved all in and the big blind folded, but cut off limper called with set of threes. Now my question is, do these short stack stop and go plays only work against one opponent as a general guideline, or was it just unlucky for me facing bigger hands? Thanks in advance. 
Is he asking me if it's unlucky to flop top two pair in the run in the bottom set? Did I catch that right? <laughs> I think I think it was I'm just top pair. I think it was just top pair. I must have misheard. Sorry, go it ahead. Was, it was just top pair, to be fair. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh okay. Well, even if it's top pair versus bottom set, uh, that's still pretty unlucky. That's actually monumentally unlucky with less than 10 big ones. Let's talk, let's talk about this. When you have 12x or anything, there is this magical line that exists in tournament poker, and that line is 10 big blinds. I do not understand it as somebody who's done a bunch of card murders in calcs, because you can raise to 3x, and if the nittiest player on earth shoves 8x into you, you can fold, even with an ace in your hand. The equity will just be garbage. You can set that up on an equity calculator, improve it, right? Or it's three into nine, whatever the hell it is. There is a number there, right? But here's the thing. Everybody does this thing where if they raise and you have less than 10x, they cannot fold to you. And since it is very difficult to have a significant edge in no limit hold'em, that is generally not a good thing if that person gets to see all seven cards at the end. So... When you're short stack, I think it's a better idea, as we've been discussing with G over the past few weeks, to complete the big blind. And then, if you hit, jam. Now, above that 10 big blind stack, people get into this weird category of, I don't need to call there. When there are some times a guy is jamming so damn wide, you should be calling 15x jams with king 10 off, or queen jack offsuit or Jack-10 suited. But they people like black and white answers. People like simple answers because it's easier to tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. I have a system. I keep to that system. Therefore, it's the right thing. I was just unlucky. But if you jam 12x there, you have so much more fold equity than you realize. I think that was a jam, nine times out of ten with the ace-10 offsuit. If the nittiest opener in the world opened, then by all means, call there. And then, yeah, you can shove the second pair. You will turn a profit. But generally, you want to be shoving there. Now, that small blind limp, I'm going to tell you, nobody on earth knows if that's profitable or not. I don't know how to figure that out on a lot of calculators because... I'll tell you what I do is I look at databases where people limp in there, but there's a huge range. You probably turn in a profit from what I can tell, but I can't tell you for sure. And I've always made it a habit in this podcast just to tell you exactly what I know, which is, I'm not even going to say a lot. Some people can make that profitable, the 10-9 off. But there's also 40% of the people I look at, if you look at them limping in, Anything that's not, you know, just an unsuited connector. We'll stay with those. They're losing more money than if they folded every single small blind. Like they're small blind with 10-9 offsuit, 8-9 offsuit, 7-8 offsuit is negative 56, negative 65. And if they just folded preflop, it would have been negative 50. So not a fan of the play. Done card runners EV counts. I don't love it. Uh, probably profitable. Not sure. I probably would have limped in there, too. I'm not going to say it's the greatest play on earth, because I don't know. Uh, now, you hit, you hit top pair, you jam. 
Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do, kid. Yeah, just run better. Yeah, Alex Alex is next, but... Yeah, make make sure he doesn't have a set of threes. That's going to be the title of my next book. All right, let's go (laughs) to the next one. Uh, Okay, last question that we have time for today, and this one's from Greg. Hi, Alex. I was wondering if you had a list of drills or things I can do on a daily basis. Like, I want to do at least two hours a day on a topic and make sure I really master and ingrain the topics you talk about in your teachings. For me personally, I need to pound it into my head over and over, and the only way I can is with off-table drills. If it's hand analysis, maths drills, odds percentages, player profile drills, note-taking drills, I don't know, something. I only need maybe an outline of what to do, how to do it, and I can get the data to work on from poker simulators or other tools I have on my PC. I'm a live player, so database analysis is not really possible, but I'm okay with getting some simulation data hands in and playing around with it. I just feel a little unsure and not confident in my skills. I tend to keep reverting back to basic non-optimal poker, hand strength focused. So looking for a little direction. I hate to bug you for something so specialised just for me. You're a busy guy, but I just thought I would ask. Thanks for anything you can provide, and thanks for your time, Greg. Uh, hey Greg, no, it's a good question and everybody could benefit from it, so it's not just for you, it's good, it's good, it's yeah. a really good question. Uh, <clears throat> just so all the online players know, uh, I do, you know what Barry, what we're going to do today, we're going to, I'm going to send you a preview video for Master Poker in one hour a day, which is all about setting up drills like this, but it's more tailored towards online poker. I have a preview video for that. I don't think we've ever run. I'm going to send that to Barry with a link, okay. and you guys can check that out. That's normally 200 bucks. It's on sale for 50 right now. That's what you do if, uh, it, hold on a second, my phone just blew up. Sorry about it. Um, that's how you do it online is what that video will show you. But the way you do it live, the first thing I want to say here is you, you're feeling unsure of yourself, which to me sounds very self-aware. And I'm going to let you know, you're in a category, a very small category of every single poker player on earth. We're all just winging it. We're all trying to figure it out. You guys, the funniest thing is I was probably, I, I, I was just, I felt like a no limit hold'em hacker when I played on the tour, when I played professionally, which was I had a very, I eventually really liked my game, but event, at the beginning I just had all these ugly plays that worked out, and they're going to be discussed quite a bit in the next book. But I, at some point, said, I need to learn how to play poker. And then as my poker coaching became, wow, that was eight years ago I started. Uh, Eight years ago, I started coaching more often just to pay my bills. And I thought, when I was teaching, I I kept saying, I'd really like to have an equity calc that showed this. Because telling people, because I told you so, is not that convincing, right? And... As I started getting into this and I was asking really big players, how do you do this? I I found out something which was most of these guys don't know how to do this stuff. I've had the pleasure of teaching two number one pocket fivers. Uh, 
both of them had no idea how to do what we were talking about. And uh, two top five pocket fibers, one of them, one of them did know how to do everything. The other didn't. And, uh, you know, all really good guys. And by the, by the way, once they started, it was like watching a kid. Uh, it, it was like watching a future figure skater on the ice rink for the first time. Once, once they started getting it and how to use the calculators, they actually asked much more interesting questions than I was asking. It was very fun to watch that process. But just so you know, everybody is wondering how to do this. Now, if you want to play live, what I would recommend is you use Flopzilla. Flopzilla is, I'm probably going to say, the best purchase I've ever made as far as poker. I think it's $25, 30 It's been eight years since I bought it, or six, or whatever it is. Uh, love the thing. Uh, it, all it does is count combinations. And if you read Cole South's book, Let There Be Range, which was this groundbreaking book in 2007, what you'll recognize is it actually, it's a very well-written book, but it's very remedial combinatorics. But at the time, people didn't know how to do that. I tried to do it with pen and paper, and then once I got Flopzilla, I went, well, that was wrong. You know, it was kind of... It was like watching a caveman trying to draw on the walls and understand the Pythagorean theorem or something, right? I was just so far off. But then with Flopzilla, it does it all for you. I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I kept showing it to people, trying to... Because I didn't like poker. What was the one that was really big? Poker Stove kept counting combinations twice and stuff like that. And that always bugged me. Even though it was neat for what it was at the time, it was helpful, but Flopzilla was just super cool, right? You could take the range from Flop, Turn, and River, and I just loved it, and I, I started playing with it, and I think what, if you guys can learn anything from me, just keep that sense of joy. Keep, keep that love of the game, because I, I wasn't trying to become... I wasn't like, I've got to be a better poker player. I've been putting this off for so long. I'm so bad at poker. I need to, I need to study. I was just, oh, this is cool. I wonder how you do this. And I, I didn't really get frustrated because I wasn't thinking, well, God, I bet so-and-so is really good at this, and I, I'm an idiot with it. I was just trying to have fun with it. And the more I kept playing with ranges, the more I – Learned the more I learned just basic truths. If I if I could say anything as far as drills, I would put it like this. If you're starting here, and uh, like I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to come up with a lot more drills. I actually my next webinar is all about drills. It's my best drilling system for my students. Uh, like my favorite games to play with them, like to get them kind of freaked out, kind of put them under pressure and see if they'll perform. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But uh, <clears throat> one thing I would do is write down any hand you find interesting at the poker table. Just any hand you wonder, like, what was the right decision there? And 
try to figure it out with Flopzilla, which is like let's say let's say you have like King Jack offsuit on the cutoff, and a guy opens ahead of you, and you think should I have three bet there? <coughs> well, let's say in live poker you fold, and <coughs> excuse me guys, you you're not sure that was the right thing to do. Well, something you can do is kind of play that situation a hundred times. You pull up Flopzilla, and underneath, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to pull it up right now on my computer so I, I can call the sections out. But underneath the main part, uh, to the left, you can't miss it. It's the whole point of the system. You put in what you think his range is, right? And then underneath dead cards to your right, you put in your hand. And then what you end up doing is saying, okay, if I three bet here, what would he four bet me with? So you get rid of those hands and you count the, it'll have the number of combinations at the bottom. And you say like, okay, so this many combinations out of these combinations he starts with, I lose eight big blinds. Okay. Right. Or whatever it is. And then you go to the you go to what hands he flats you with, and then underneath where it says board, you start putting random boards there. And you see how, okay, if I see that half pot, how often would it work? It needs to work 33% of the time. How often would it actually work, right? And then it's going to be harder to do the equity calcs. If you want to do the equity calcs, you're going to have to learn how to use Cardrunner ZV. There's a hundred videos on how to use it online. None of them particularly thrilling. Uh, but if I could say anything, actually, you know, let's make this even more simple. Just start with what they're flatting and put random boards out there and ask yourself, what would I bet? And why would I bet that much? And then see what you think the guy is likely to do. And it'll, underneath, there's a six section called statistics. It's going to show you what percentage of the time the guy has every hand. And you look at that. And you ask myself, how often does my bet need to work? The way you figure out how often your bet needs to work is you divide the bet size by the entire pot you stand to win. Uh, so this will give you a good framework for three betting and C betting. Now there's, if, when I teach poker, people are always amazed by how much I stress the basics. The problem with the basics is it has the word basic in it. The basics are not something to be sneezed at. If I was teaching you how to box, you, you'd be doing a jab cross every day of your life. Floyd Mayweather is somewhere throwing a jab right now. He might never fight again. He's probably throwing a jab right now. There's many boxers that just have a jab. There's many boxers who just have a counter, a cross. Your open is your jab. Your three bet is the counter. Your C bet is your hook, whatever you want to call it, right? If you can get those, you don't need a whole lot else but what ends up happening is I get a lot of students coming up to me. They're like, all right, I want to figure out how to like crunch these ranges and kill people on flop, turn, and river. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's like the spinning back fist, buddy. 
that's like nine years in you start doing that, right? Uh, sorry, Switch Sports, but there I couldn't come up with a super fancy boxing play. And what you really want to be looking at is how often is my C-bet going to work? What boards are good for that? And simplify as much as possible. Go, oh, the boards where there's two Broadway cards and one of them being a 10, those tend to be pretty horrendous to see bet on. Maybe I'll check, give up there. Or, oh, on the A-side board, the guy's either got an ace or nothing, so I don't have to bet that big. And go down the line like that. Or one thing you'll notice on most boards is about half the time they have no pair, no draw on most boards, right? It's around half the time. If you bet any amount that's going to fold out a high card and it doesn't need to work more than 50% of the time, it's a profitable bet. So open your mind to betting three-fourths pot, two-thirds pot, not just half pot all the time. And one-third pot if it's an A-side board. But you're always trying to simplify as much as possible and play with the ranges. Now, a really fun thing to do, and I'll leave you with this on Flopzilla, there are these little, when you put out a board, take another situation. Let's say you open from middle position, somebody calls you from the big blind. These are the two situations I study nonstop because they come up hundreds of times a month, right? Triple barrel bluffing is really sexy and it doesn't come up that much. Therefore, it's not really important. I'm throwing a jab when I'm at the gym if I'm a professional boxer. The other one I look at is let's say a guy calls you from the big blind, right? You see bet and he calls you and you have to wonder, what do I do on the turn? What do I do on the river? Well, something really fascinating you can do, something that blew my mind and blew me up as a poker player to be much more relevant than I ever was before and to feel much more present, much more under control, much more assured when I played was what you can do in Flopzilla is go to the statistics. After the board is out there, you put a blue filter next to everything you think he calls you with. Okay, so if you think he's going to check raise a set, you, you don't put a blue filter next to that, right? If you think he's folding an ASI, you don't have a blue filter next to that. If you think he's check-raising some flush draws, the ones with the overcard, but not the, uh, not the normal flush draws, you're going to have to right-click flush draw, and then you're going to have to go into it and put a blue filter next to what you want to keep and an X under what you don't want to keep to the left, okay? Once you have that range, there is a button at the button uh, at the bottom. It's a... It's the overall filters percentage. It'll show you how many hands that is. Click on that. Uh, where it has a little red dot, click on that red dot till it goes green. And what I think happens is one of the most magical things I've ever seen, which is underneath the range, it'll now show you how many combos the guy has of every hand and what percentage that makes up of the range. If you have ever tried to do this by pen and paper, if you've ever tried to do this in your mind, the fact that you can just do it in a few seconds is breathtaking. And then you add a turn card and see how all the ranges change. 
now you start getting some ideas. Now you start seeing, oh, he has this, this percentage of the time. I wonder what this bet would do. And remember, it's called No Limit for a reason. You're allowed to overbet. Hope that gives you something to chew on. Have fun with it. If you have fun with it, y'all have already won because then you're likely to keep doing it. Good luck, Greg. Okay, and okay, that and is all we... Oh, God, Alex, really? Um, that is all we have time for this week, people. Um, Alex did well a couple of episodes. He managed to do something. And har, har! Yeah, There was no echo, feedback, whatever. This time, he's just doing it again to make my life... Um, actually, it gives me something to moan about, doesn't it? So I'm going to enjoy that anyway. Like that. Go ahead. Okay, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for webinars, products you got for sale, etc.? Write me at alexandpokerheadrush.com if you guys have any questions. And if you want to sign up for my newsletter, which gives you free exclusive articles, free podcasts, free videos, free strategy advice several times a week, go to my butt-ugly blog, pokerheadrush.com. Go to the top right there is a little thing that says sign up for the newsletter and you will sign up for a much more beautiful newsletter than that little fun blog I've had for the better part of a decade and have never updated. And yeah, make sure you're filtering in your email filters to get uh, messages from assassinatocoaching at gmail.com and you should just get free strategy content delivered right to your email inbox every couple of days. So be sure to check that out. And be sure to check out the the preview video of Master Tournament Poker in one hour a day. Check that out on underneath the liner notes in Barry's podcast post. Yeah. Okay. And keep your questions coming in for Alex, please. Questions at oneouter.com on email, and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, thanks very much for joining us again. We got this one out on the Friday. It'll be out for everyone for this weekend. Good luck to all the listeners if you're playing. If you're not, good luck just enjoying life or studying or whatever you're doing. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.